It's certainly good to be here this morning, and uh, we appreciate the presence of all those that have come to be with us to worship God today. We're grateful for that, and I am honored to be your speaker. I want to invite your attention, as I have written on the board, to the book of Matthew, the 18th chapter, and we'll begin reading there in verse 15. The words of Jesus are these, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. There's much in the, in the word of God that tells us about what God has done because of man's sin. I am so grateful, as are you today, that God loved us so very much when we were not worthy that he sent a Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of his scheme of redemption to die on the cross and that you and I, when we contact that blood at baptism, our sins are washed away. Much is said about the sinner with regards to his sin, too, in the word of God. To the alien sinner who has not been enlightened by the gospel and then is, has the responsibility of obeying the gospel and going down into the waters of baptism to rise and walk in newness of life with his sins washed away. The Bible also is clear about what happens to us when we fall into the temptations and a snare and when we stumble and fall after we become a Christian. Oh, the Bible speaks so greatly about the seriousness of sin. But our question before us today is this. What does it say about my obligation, me personally? What must I do when my brother falls? We're going to talk about this from the 18th chapter of the book of Matthew and what Jesus meant and what you and I can glean from these verses of scripture that Jesus said so long ago. I failed to mention just a moment ago, and I'd like to say so now, that we have some visitors that are among us, and we're very thankful that you're with us, and we want to say welcome to you. And uh, also, we say this certainly not to the exclusion of any other, but it's wonderful that May is better today and is able to be with us. We're thankful that prayers have been heard and answered on her behalf. Going back to the occasion upon which Jesus spoke these words so long ago, you remember that the disciples of Jesus came to him and asked him a question. And quite certainly they were not prepared or they couldn't have even fathomed that Jesus would answer the question like he did so long ago. They asked Jesus a question much like maybe you and I would ask as we live in a world or in a society of competitiveness and ranking and so on and so forth. What we want to do as being in the mortal fleshly bodies that we are in we want to know how it is that we can rise up the chain or rise up the pecking order, as it were. As there are animals out in a pasture, they have a pecking order. And I just kind of picture in my mind's eye these disciples that came to Jesus and they asked him this question, eagerly anticipating his response. And they asked Jesus, they said, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Oh, I would just imagine that they sat anxiously as Jesus would respond. But Jesus responded much like 
He did, and in a way that I'm sure surprised them all. He calls a little child unto them, and the Bible says that he took that child, and he set that child in the midst of them, and he said this. He said, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's exactly how it is that Jesus responded to their inquiry on that occasion. They asked, who's the greatest? We want to know who the first place fella is. We want to understand the chain or the pecking order. But Jesus said this, except you be converted and become as little children, like the child that I have stood in the very midst of you today, you can't go to heaven at all. Very interesting because Jesus now is going to continue on with a number of things regarding one of these little ones or one of these children. What was Jesus talking about, though, when he said, except you be converted and become as little children? How can that be? Well, this coincides just exactly with the words of Jesus in John, the third chapter, when he spoke to Nicodemus uh, on that occasion, when he said that a man must be born again. We understand that the child of God is born again. We don't, uh, we, we are not, there are not many different kinds of Christians and we happen to be a born again one. No, but all Christians are born again. What did Jesus say in Matthew 18? You have to be converted and become as little children. Nicodemus had no idea what Jesus was referring to, so he asks a question much like I'm sure we would have asked uh, as well. And, G and uh, Nicodemus says, how is that possible? How can a man be born again when he is old? Could he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? But Jesus would say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus says that a man must be born of water and the spirit. And the Apostle Paul in Romans, the sixth chapter, says exactly how that happens. We rise to walk in newness of life when we go down into the waters of baptism. And when we do that, we contact the precious blood of Jesus, which washes our sins away. That's what Jesus was talking about. They wanted to know who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus says, except you be converted and become as this little child, you cannot go to heaven at all. But then in context to what we're discussing now, Jesus begins to speak of the child of God. He refers to the child of God as little children. He refers to the child of God as one of these little ones and so on. And he says in verse number six now, if anyone would offend one of these little ones, it would be better that a millstone were hung around his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Oh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father, God Almighty, loves the little ones. They love the child of God. Those that have become as a little child at baptism. Oh, yes. Jesus says, if anyone would offend one of these little ones, it would be better that a millstone were hung around his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. The question, though, is what does the word offend mean? I understand, as defined by Mr. Thayer, it means to put a stumbling block or to put an impediment in the way of upon which another may trip and fall. 
simply in the common vernacular in our uh, simple language today, what Jesus was talking about was to entice to sin. In verses 7 through 9, Jesus pronounces woe upon all those who encourage to sin or all those that put stumbling blocks in the way of or in the path of the righteous. And the person or the thing that tempted to do evil was to be cast off or given up even if it was as dear as the right eye, the right hand, or even the foot. In verse 9, Jesus almost repeats the very same words that he said on the Sermon on the Mount so long ago when he preached that sermon in the fifth chapter of Matthew and verses 29 through 30 where Jesus said these words, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not thy whole body should be cast into hell. What did Jesus mean in Matthew chapter 5? And what does Jesus mean in Matthew 18? What's he saying? Is he saying that if I'm a chicken thief or I have a problem stealing from others, that the only way that I'm going to be able to stop doing that is, is he commanding me to go and chop off my hands at the wrist so that I no longer can go out and use these hands to steal from another? Is that what Jesus meant? Did Jesus mean when one would be guilty of the lust of the eyes or to lust after another one or do that which is unlawful in the sight of God and do so by the eyes, is he saying that I must now go and pluck out my eyes for it is better for me to live my life with no eyes and go to heaven? Is that what he means? What about when he says, thy foot? He's talking about things that are very precious to us. My hands, my eyes, and my feet. I need these things. I need my eyes to see. I need my hands to function. And I need my feet to walk. Oh, these are things that we need. But Jesus was talking about something that's even more important. He's talking about offending or causing your brother to stumble or fall. And what he's talking about is this. He didn't mean that if one has feet that are running to mischief, he didn't say go home and take something ever so sharp and cut the feet off at the ankle. No, these are figurative things. They are not literal things. We know in God's word that God never permits a man to maim himself. It is a sin to do yourself harm in that respect. So what was Jesus speaking of? He is using figurative language to show that we need to deny our selfish and proud desires. And do like Paul said in Colossians 3. You remember earlier on in the chapter before verse 5 of Colossians 3? What Paul said is, he's now saying that after you become as little children that Jesus said, after you rise from the waters of baptism, you are not through, you are not done, and you have even a greater responsibility. You have to stay in a state 
of forgiveness. You have to stay in a state that will cause you to be able to be saved in that last and final day. You now are governed by different rules and regulations, and that's found in God's Word. So what did Paul say? He says, once you're risen with Christ, now you seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Do you know how the absolute best way to not struggle in this life? You know what the very best way is? Listen, folks, I'm not naive to think that there are not great temptations all around us. You need to know this, too, that the devil, the devil knows your weaknesses and will entice you and will do things in order that you might stumble because that's what he wants. The place called hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. And he wants to take as many people with him, with him and his angels as possible. But you know how you avoid the temptation? Proverbs says you refrain your foot from their path. Oh, I'm not trying to oversimplify, but it's quite true. That you cannot do two opposite things at the same time. What did Paul say? By divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You want to know how you'll be successful living the Christian life? You stop thinking about these things and you start setting your affections on these things. If I am traveling in the proper way and I am governed by the things that are found in this word, as the Bible says, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are pure, of good report, what did it say? Think on these things. That's how you avoid the tempter. That's how you avoid stumbling and falling. So what was Jesus talking about with reference to the flesh? Well, like Paul said in Colossians 3, you set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And then he says in verse 5, you put to death their members which are upon the earth. You turn your back on those fleshly or worldly or sinful things. If I am thinking about God, I'm not going to think about something that's evil or wicked at that very time. Surely not. I have to stop thinking about that which is good and that which is righteous in order to think about those things that are evil. If you find yourself struggling, start being proactive. Don't be one that is trying to avoid the temptations as they come your way. Of all the negative things that are before you and hope to succeed, no, you start proactively thinking on the things that you should and live in accordance with that and let your actions follow where your heart is and that which is right and you'll be successful in this life. In verse 10, Jesus says to take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. Interesting word despise here. I understand this word means to disdain to think little of or to regard with contempt, which means to belittle or treat with disrespect. This tells me that as I live the Christian life, I am not to have disdain for my brother. I am not to think little of my brother. I am not to regard with contempt my brother, and I am not to belittle him or treat him with disrespect. That's what Jesus says when he said, be careful, be careful that you do not despise your brother. Mr. Bowles says, to despise them means to put temptations in their way. 
He said, men often despise the poor or the humble Christian. In so doing, they do them wrong and almost force them by oppression into doing evil. But the Bible is very clear that the Lord is the avenger of those who treat such disciples in that way. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in verse number 6, he said that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. But then Jesus gives another reason for not despising those little ones, not casting stumbling blocks in front of fellow Christians. You know why? Verse 11, he came to seek and save that which is lost. Oh, great pains have been made so that you and I can go to heaven. Woe to the one that would cause a stumbling block to be placed in front of a brother to lose his soul that Jesus died in order to save. Oh, this is serious business as we live our lives. Then Jesus continues on in verses 12 through 14, and he gave the parable of the lost sheep. You know what he said about this? He is saying that even the ones that we would consider the least, he's saying that there is just as much of a desire on the part of God that that one is saved than the ones that the world would look upon or you and I in the flesh would look upon as those that are the most renowned. The ones that we see, the preachers and so on, that we see in the public eye preaching the word of God and so on. Jesus is outlining that that person that would be, as I paraphrase, that would be considered the most renowned, whatever that means, is no more important than the little one that's struggling day by day. And you know what he says about that? He likens it like this. If a man has a hundred sheep, he's got a hundred of them. Ninety-nine of those stay home. Ninety-nine of those stay in the flock and they do not leave or depart. Jesus says about this idea... What if one departs? What if one is lost? He said, you not only are going to go out and search for him, but I want you to notice the diligent search and the efforts to restore or bring back that sheep. He said that a man is going to depart the 99 and he's going to go to the mountains and he's going to do whatever it takes to bring that one back. That's what Jesus thinks about. The Christian. That's what he thinks about. And as he gave his application to the parable, it says, Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these should perish. The point that Jesus is making is that as it's not the will of the shepherd that one in the flock should perish, so it is not the will of the Father that even one of the least of the disciples would perish either. Now these three verses. Continuing on, he's still talking about little ones. Who are the little ones? They are the Christians. He talks about the yearning love for those that are lost and how important it is not to cause your brother to stumble. Now he's going to talk about what do you do when he does stumble? What is my obligation? What is my duty along that line? Specifically, we're not going to talk about anything else other than what Matthew 18 is referring to by way of context. And that is, if thy brother sin against thee. The only thing that Matthew 18, the rules of Matthew 18 are regarding is a specific 
instance of one personally sinning against another. The rules of Matthew 18 do not apply to 1 Corinthians 5 or Titus 3 and 10. And if you'll come back tonight, we'll talk about those things as well. But notice in Matthew the 18th chapter, Jesus is referring to one specific thing. What is my responsibility when my brother sins against me? Notice, this is a sin. It must be a definite sin and not an imaginary wrong or an imaginary grievance that comes under the teachings by context of Jesus here. Oftentimes, members of the body of Christ might imagine that they've been sinned against when in reality, no sin has been committed against them. Jesus gave three things, three instructions. Before we talk about it, though, what about the idea if God, in his infinite wisdom, sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world, and Jesus has the utmost feelings of compassion toward those that are lost, wanting them to return, Jesus Christ is going to be the righteous judge, the Bible says, and all of that. What about you and I? being judges of our fellow man. Really quickly, Matthew 7. Jesus, on the great Sermon on the Mount, he specified that the manner in which we judge is under question, but not the judging in itself. In fact, the Bible is clear. Not only in Matthew 7, not only is it okay to judge, but I am told that I must do so. And what Jesus likens it, he likens it like this. He said, if your brother has a speck in his eye, one little speck, and you've got a beam in your eye, he wasn't saying, keep your beam, let him keep his speck, and everybody work on their own problems. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, get the beam out of your eye first. What is the reason for getting the beam out of your eye? So you can see clearly to help your brother get the speck out of his eye. We have a responsibility to each other. You've heard me say this and from time to time. It's going to take all of us. It really is. We need each other and to help each other along the way and along those lines. What do you do, though, says Jesus, when one would sin against you? Number one, step one. He says you go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. What did Jesus mean when he said, tell him his fault? It means so much more than just letting him know what he has done. Telling his fault directly means this. It means to reprove or to rebuke him. Remembering the entire time, there is one object desired. You know, I'll tell you, sometimes we're afraid to go talk to someone for fear of how they'll respond. But if you can manifest the attitude in your demeanor, in your speech and in every manner that you are going about to do this and have it be what the focus is that Jesus says it is, that's because you love your brother to the point that you want them to be restored. If they can feel that in your conversation, chances are you're going to be successful. And even if you're not successful, folks usually don't raise up and get angry about those things when you have the proper heart. The entire gist of what Jesus is wanting us to understand is the object is to restore our brother or our sister. This is very important because we are talking about something that is very, very important and very serious. We're talking about sin. 
And any sin that is unrepented of makes that individual lost until he or she makes those things right. That's why. Why should I go to talk to my brother when he has sinned against me? Because he's lost. If he's not lost, it wasn't a sin. And if it wasn't a sin, Matthew 18 does not apply. But if he has sinned, any sin unrepented of will cause you to be lost. So we need to understand that and to restore him to duty, number one, and also to restore him to, our, to friendship. And when we do that, that's the object of the rebuke, is to bring him back to both. Also, please notice that it is not as some were inclined to have it, that the offender must do the going, but rather it is the offended that must go. It is true that elsewhere in the word of God, it's made the duty of the offender when he remembers that his brother has ought against him to go and be reconciled to his brother. That is true. But in the context of Matthew 18, and according to the teaching of this passage, the offended is not to wait for this. The offended is to go and speak to the offender. Have you ever said this, though? Have you ever done this? Ever at all, even once? He knows where I am. He knows where to find me. It's his problem, not mine. He needs to straighten this out. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, the offended, go and speak to the offender and don't wait for him to come to you. That is very important. Those who have not sinned, but only have been sinned against, have an opportunity and an obligation as well. Mr. McGarvey said, you may thus be like the shepherd that Jesus spoke of in the previous verses, and may also avoid the sin of despising an erring disciple. I think there's something else that needs to be observed here. Jesus does not specify the time. He does not specify the place, nor does he specify the circumstances of going to the offending brother. They are not specified by Jesus. But it must be like the matter and manner of the rebuke. you got to choose a time that you're going to be successful. That's the whole object. If my brother, I'll use Bob because he's in the front row and he won't mind. But if Bob sins against me, I have the obligation of loving Bob's soul enough that I'm going to go to him and speak to him and I'm going to choose a time and a place with surrounding areas and circumstances wherein that I'm not there to embarrass him, I'm there to restore him. And I need to pick and choose the very best circumstances and the very best place. Jesus says when you go do that, you show him his fault to him and him alone. But also notice what Paul said in Galatians 6 and verse 1. He said, Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted." In other words, show him his wrong so that he will repent. Again, it's the duty of the offended party to do such. What happens when you don't? What happens if Bob sinned against me and I don't do what Jesus said? See, the, the rules are perfect. The pattern is perfect. It's man 
that messes it up. What if I don't do what Jesus said and Bob has sinned against me? I'm going to start brooding over it, aren't I? You know what happens when you do that? It's really hard not to. This is what happens when you brood over it and you don't take care of it. Over time, you start to harbor malice in your heart. If you harbor malice in your heart long enough, it's going to gender hatred. And now you've sinned. Look at that. Not only is it the responsibility to restore your brother, but it's to also help you not to stumble and fall. Jesus would say that if a man would have hatred for his brother, it's like murder. You've, you've done that in your heart. All the things that were under the old law was specific, black and white, do this, don't do that. But Jesus would say, I know that you've heard it hath been said, but I say unto you. That tells me that my thoughts about my brother are in question as well. Hopefully and prayerfully, when I go to him, he will say, sure. And put it away, put it aside, and all is well. And let me just say this. If he repents, don't ever speak of it again. That's the worst thing that you can ever do. Speak to your brother privately if in this private sin. If he has repented, speak no more against it. Now, Jesus said, well, if he won't hear you, there's a second step. And he says, you take two more with you. You go with one or two more. Now there's three that have come to this erring brother. He is a lost sheep and has strayed away. And if the brother who has found him cannot restore him, he must get one or two more to help him. Again, the object is still to gain or restore that brother. The Jews required at least two witnesses to every act of crime and offense against the law. Deuteronomy 17 and verse number 6. This very same principle is carried out in the New Testament as well. John 8 and 17, 2 Corinthians 13 and 1, and Hebrews 10 and verse 28. This truly is wise, or else God would not have not commanded it to be so. Now, the design of taking two witnesses may be twofold. Number one, first of all, the erring or offending brother, may be, it may be possible that he would be induced to return because of the prudent and wise brethren that go with you. Maybe someone else just happens to know how to say it a little better. Have you ever wanted to tell somebody something and you were nervous about it and inside you felt a certain way about it, but when you conveyed it, it didn't sound at all like you really wanted it to sound? You wanted to delicately speak something to this, this fellow, your brother in Christ, whoever it is, a family member, but then as you hear it, as it's being said, that's not really what I meant. And you sound horrible about it in your tone. Maybe, maybe you just don't have the ability to speak as you really feel. Maybe. Jesus said there's plan two. Take a couple more. You know something else too? It may be that your brother does not even know that he sinned. You see how important it is to go to him? And if he didn't know that he sinned and he has a good heart, he's going to immediately say, I had no idea, I'm sorry, forgive me, and then all is well. So, number one step for bringing one or two more is so that they may use all of their influence on restoring the brother too. But Jesus says, if, the, if he will not hear or he will not repent, 
there is yet a third step. And Jesus says, you go to the church. You tell it to the church. Again, the purpose of all of our efforts is to save the wrongdoer. When the one who has received the wrong has exalted, exhausted all of his means, I'll use Bob again. If I go to Bob and I'm trying so hard, but I can't be successful, and then I go and I bring two more, and we try ever so hard, but we're not successful, we still have a brother that's lost that needs to take care of his sin. So now it goes before the church. I want you to notice something, though. The attitude and the heart of the church is the exact same attitude and heart as the very first time that I went and spoke to my brother. And what are we going to do now? We're going to use everything we possibly can in the spirit of meekness. There needs to be a united effort that is prayerfully based that we might restore the brother. And to do so with every means that we possibly can as it goes before the church. If he will not hear thee, tell it to the church. If, the church. if he will not hear the church, Jesus says, treat him as a heathen man and a publican. In other words, he is to be avoided until he repents. He is, though, entitled to the earnest goodwill with all the offices of humanity, but he no longer is in fellowship with the body of Christ. Because as one man said one time, the one who will not hear the church has no claim on it for its fellowship and blessings any more than anyone that's outside of the body of Christ. You know, in all manners of discipline in the Word of God, the reason for the discipline now, when he won't hear the church, is for that individual to feel in his heart the separation of his loved ones and brethren not because there's hatred and punishment, not because somebody's being vindictive. It's so that person comes to see the light, so that person may repent and make it right. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I just love them too much. I'm going to share something with you that uh, this is the best way that I know to put this. Someone asked me one time, what if one of those little ones was Taylor or Tanner? What then? I understand that when your child is not living right, I understand that that's even more difficult because of your feelings of affection toward them. I understand that. All I can say is I would hope and pray that I would love them as much as my father loved me. There comes a time in your life when you feel the separation from that which is good and right, and you come to the crossroads of a decision. And sometimes your brethren or your family is the only tie that you have left. Sometimes you're so filled with the worldly things that are around you, you've made poor choices and decisions. And the only thing and the only tie that you have to that which is righteous and right is your brethren, your friends, or your family. Well, I, I happen to know that good decisions can be made when that happens, that's the result that we're trying to achieve. That's the reason. It's not that we have hatred. Oh, no. We love them enough to do that in that they might return. In conclusion this morning, these are the steps 
of Matthew 18, specifically referring to when one sins against you. Now then, as long as we live in the flesh, there is going to be various conflicts. I understand that. We're in the flesh. We're going to have disagreements from time to time. We're going to have misunderstandings and even sin. These are things that are going to go on. Whether we like it or not, they do go on. But if we would go back to the Bible pattern and we would follow the Bible pattern, that's perfect. And go back to some other things that we have considered in our Wednesday evening studies about the heart and, and, the, and the motive behind my actions. Again, if I'm thinking about Terry and he's thinking about me and we're putting ourselves aside as the Word of God teaches, we're going to get through anything. We're going to get through anything. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.